Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Just to let you know, this week on the podcast, we had a recording issue with questions on Spotify Live, and they weren't sent through to us. If we do get them, we'll put them up as another episode, but we do have the Patreon questions, so listen to those. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, all right, all right. Let's get this started, shall we? Uh, Ian says, is a format played exclusively in one country brackets the hundred what else would we be talking about <laughs> sustainable long term if yes how do you then grow it if no how long before it becomes a t20 competition look i i mean i suppose we only have one real other than the start of t20 we probably only have one real tournament that's ever done anything like this the pro 40 i i look at pro 40 uh in a way similar to um betamax it was obviously a better product than VHS. Actually, maybe that's not even the right way of putting it because it was around after, but it was obviously the superior product, but the rest of the world never took up Pro 40 and um, they kept going with the 50 over game. Uh, I, I, you know, in my long history of watching one day, I much preferred the 40 over game than the 50 over game. I just thought it was a little bit more dynamic, um, a little bit more enjoyable. It had... It still had the ability to, you know, play long innings and, and, you know, you still saw a lot of bowlers, but you also took out just 10 overs that, I don't know, maybe superfluous is the wrong way of putting it. No one else ever seemed to care. Now, a Pro 40 wasn't exactly the 100, right? The 100 is a big tournament. It's It'll go on to probably be the second biggest tournament in domestic cricket if it's you know, nurtured correctly, just because it has the second biggest audience, can make the second most money, all those sorts of things. Well, not the second biggest audience, but the, the second biggest audience that gives them money. You know, India is the richest cricket nation. England is the second richest cricket nation, right? So you would expect it to, if it is in any way nurtured correctly, go on to be at least top two, uh, well, sorry, at least top three, hopefully top two if they've done it correctly. If it is, if it is in that, you know, scenario, is it possible that then we start to see um, more other leagues doing it? The problem is that it came from a, the 100 came from a very, um, what's the best way of putting it? The 100 came about because of a marketing decision 
and a little bit of the BBC wanted the games to be slightly shorter. What other country wants the games to be shorter? Right? It doesn't really make sense. You actually want the product to go as long as it goes. You get more viewership. You get more streaming time. You get more social media posts. So this was very much done around the BBC and around uh, Mumsnet, the, the website. I'm not going to get fully into the whole discussion on that. But if you go to a bunch of people who don't like something and say, we can do less of it, of course, they're going to say yes, rather than what probably should have been done is we can make the games a little bit tighter by playing 120 balls, but 60 balls at one end and then 60 balls at the other, which is uh, you know, an idea I've been talking about a lot. And I think the first tournament who's going to do that is going to be the 60 in the West Indies, which they should have done for the 100, obviously, and then they could have had their 120 balls and everything would have been fine. And they still would have been completely improvising and coming up with new rules and everything else because that was always going to be part of it. I, I just don't see what, if you were copying it, I just don't see why you wouldn't go for 60 balls at that point. So I think there's certainly um, I, I think there's certainly some errors with it. I don't see anyone um, using 100 balls just because it was a unique situation. Perhaps, though, if it becomes so popular, um, you might get some cricket boards that are like, look, we don't really care that much about the 100-ball concept, but if it gives us a chance to look like we're um, doing something new and out, you know, 120 ball tournament isn't working as well as we'd like. Maybe someone will try it, but I find it very hard. And then, then you look into what you're saying, the s sustainability of it. I don't know. It seems to create more headaches um, in, so in some senses, but it is essentially just a T20 tournament with a different name, right? So um, maybe you can just keep it around for a long time. Or is it one of those things that after like five or six years, as well as the hundreds going, they just change it back to 120 balls and we all laugh a little bit, but the tournament's going fine, so it doesn't matter. I don't know. It's a really good question, though. Christopher says, if the landscape of cricket is going to be very T20 league heavy, surely one of the most important things is uh, is the coverage starts to get better, um, like what your previous video alludes to. Yeah, th this, is, this is the really interesting thing at the moment, is that no one has really nailed the coverage of T20 cricket. Um uh, there's a lot of people who cover it, but even even so, I'm I'm hoping the sort of the IPL was the one that would work it out. Um, but part of the, the BCCI doesn't really like working with media. Um, it's never been you know one of their things. And, you know there aren't many cricket boards who do. Um, obviously, the IMG side of it probably would prefer it to come on. Um, there's certainly I think if you follow the IPL now, you could see where the bloggers, the tweeters, the YouTube creators are starting. Um, to do that, but then you go back to cricket for cricket bars, which are still the you know the gold standards. They're still very much set up for international cricket, and I don't think either of them has the ability within their business model to pivot. Obviously, this is part of the reason I set up ninety nine point nine four is to do what you're talking about, Christopher. But but you're right. I think I think because cricket has always been such a match related, match reporty sport right, which is most sports are, but cricket certainly was a very high level of match reports. The match report from a T20 game means less than a test game, and I think most people can work those two things out. And realistically, what you should be looking for from T20 games is themes and things to analyze, and that's not really how young 
uh, or newer uh, cricket riders have been trained. And so you get this thing when the match report doesn't really matter anymore, but no one's willing to go away from the match report and you don't have enough people who've been trained in how to do proper analysis and how to look for themes and all these sorts of things. But as I said, that sort of Twitter uh, uh, blogging uh, space, uh, YouTube, you know, all these sorts of people, I do think that is happening in the IPL. And if it happens in the IPL, it might happen at other places. The problem is, Christopher, is that can you make money being an IPL blogger at the moment, even a high-end one? My guess is no. It's three months of the year. You might get another two months of, um, you know, auction stuff and, you know, run into the tournament. What do you do with the rest of the year? And what we haven't seen at the moment is people sort of do the more Freddie Wild um, thing, which is where you focus on uh, all of T20. And, you know, even Freddie Wild eventually worked in T20 because that was where the money was. So there is a problem here. But I think a lot of the problem is the fact that it's all little leagues still. I think as the IPL becomes bigger um, and maybe even as some of the other tournaments swell a little bit, that that will slightly be taken away. But I do think the problem is at the moment the pop-up nature of the T20 leagues and then you get the pop-up coverage. You know, someone who was really good last year has gone off to get a better job um, and that happens a lot. And I think what what really needs to happen is more coverage of T20 as a proper sport. And I just don't think that Crick Info or Crick Buzz are set up for that. And because we don't really have great alternatives to those sites, um, it, it, you know, it really does means that someone else is going to um, have to come in and sweep it up. And there are some good, good websites coming through that are doing some good coverage, but I don't think they have the money. Um, and obviously, we're hoping 99.94 part of that, the plan there is to um, cover these T20 leagues and these T20 teams directly. That's why our model is team-based. Um, we're looking at this in a very different way than, um, than you know, how the other two websites cr- were created because they were created nation by nation, really. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yeah, it's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard, and I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah. I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live. Because you shouldn't have to change teams, even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Um, sorry if you can hear my son singing in the shower, everyone. Nort says, do we know if the ECB has tried to sell the 100 format into any other cricket-playing nations, uh, a EuroLeague or Brazil or the States? I think they that was their original thought. They trademarked it. Again, to go back to Ian's question, why would you buy it? I don't really understand why you would do that when, why you would pay the ECB any money when you can just do it yourself. Um, you just do a normal T20 league. If you, know, if you want, you could get a couple of consultants in that would be far cheaper than paying the ECB again. Um, you know, Trent Woodhill, who helped the ECB set up the 100, is available. You know, um, uh, you know I've talked to leagues and 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 
you know, uh, people who want to set up things. There's plenty of consultants out there. Uh, you know, you can get Freddie Wild that would be available for that. I just don't see why you would do that. Um, uh, so, and, and when you talk about the states, the states are going after T20 cricket. So, Major League Cricket will be a T20 competition. Uh, minor League Cricket is already a T20 competition. Um, again, I don't, I don't see the advantages of the hundred in those places. Uh, you, you, especially if you're a developing nation. The, the only time I see it as being something would be, let's say, I don't know, the Sri Lankan League, right? Uh, you know, the Lankan Premier League, after five years, just just not really popping and the audiences aren't really getting excited, whatever. I could see then a sort of 100 reinvention. Um, you know, they might be like, oh, we'll do this because the 100 doing really well, so we're going to do this and we're going to call it the Lankan 100. Um I could see that. I can't see why a Brazilian or a European or an American team would do that um, because they're, they're, they're getting, you know, their audiences don't care if it's 100 or 120 balls anyway. Um, they don't have to pay the ECB a licensing fee. You know, it would be actually the best situation for those leagues would be if they were like, we're going to start a league. We're not sure what to do. ECB, were you interested in paying for our league? And then we'll call it the 100. Um which is a possibility, I suppose, as well. But yeah, I just don't, you know, see the point. If I was, if, if you came to me as a consultant today, I'd be like, well, no, let's just start a T20 league or a T10 league and go from there. Sachmo says, uh, why have so many left-wing writers love cricket, given that it's mainly played by right-wing people? Um, well, I think the best thing there, Sachmo, is that most writers are left-wing. I think it's a harder, I, I don't think writing is a particularly natural um uh, sport, uh, sport skill um, for right wing people. I don't think it's the way that conservative um, style people work. That doesn't mean that there haven't been conservative writers and they won't continue to be. But as a general rule, I think writing is probably done better by people with a more open mind, uh, more curious, um, more um, uh, you know left brained for whatever reason that may be. Um, people who have empathy, people who are willing to open up. Um, all those sorts of things probably come from a more left-wing space to begin with. So I think, you know, writing is probably, you know, in left-wing circles is probably seen as a, uh, a worthy um, thing to do. And I think in probably more conservative circles, writing is seen as nonsense and a bit of bullshit, right? So um, I think in general, writers are more left-wing than the population um, at large. Um, you know, yeah, apologies to Anne Rand. Uh, no apologies, Dan Rand. What a sh I mean, she was an absolute shit writer. Incredible that people still read her books. Her books are unfucking readable. Um, but um, but yeah, so I think that's the case. And then, so I don't think it's that left wing writers love cricket is is the right way of framing that. I think it's the fact that if you have a, a an endeavor like cricket that is so um, great to write about. And then you have great writers more come over to it. Um, they're going to go. Also, it's fun to go against the grain at a certain point. But I think that, you know, it goes back to the, um, what was the whole ESPN thing that the right wing, um, go woke, go broke. You know, you look at the ESPN writers um, and you do think this is a incredibly left wing um, uh, collection of writers at ESPN in America. Although you could put Crick Info in that as well. Um, and they're not always writing for a left-wing audience. So sports fans are far more conservative in, in whole. 
the whole go woke go broke thing of course was absolute nonsense the reason espn wasn't go was going broke was because people were cutting the cable ties but um you know never let the alt-right um uh, actually look for truth in any of these things so i i currently satchmo i work in um i work uh you know work for talk sport the talk sport production um setup is far more left-wing than the talk sport um uh um listenership uh the whole sun you know it's the times and the sun building again the people in that building are by and large far more progressive than the people who read their newspapers or listen to their radio stations or anything else so i don't think this is a cricket specific thing if you want to look at some cricket specific aspects of this i think that what cricket writing does and probably what football writing allows you to do maybe basketball writing is the other one um touches of tennis and athletics um uh maybe play into this as well is it does let you talk about a lot of different cultures uh it, you know it does allow you to have more topics and to understand more countries and i think if you're a writer uh well i can only talk from my personal view and i remember having a chat with this uh to this uh about jonathan lou he wasn't talking about cricket specifically but sport sport allows jonathan lou to talk about economics and business and pr stuff and social problems and moral problems and ethics and all these sorts of things in a way that a lot of other news-led writing doesn't allow you to do so i do think that cricket and that you know if you look traditionally you know probably from what world war ii through to now if you're a good writer and you like cricket it kind of sucks you in because you know the ability to write about the subcontinent the ability to write about the you know the west indian islands the ability to write about south africa the ability to write about you know new zealand and australia and the cricket teams and how the cricket teams have shaped their culture and all these different things and now afghanistan and brazil and thailand and nepal um so so i do believe that there is an element of that but just as a very very general rule Satro, i do think that people just uh, um, writers are more left-wing than quite often the audiences they're writing for james says any thoughts on young spinners birdie and moriarty at surrey neither have played uh can a game this year despite excellent returns the last few seasons yeah i think i think they were quite they were pushed a lot uh, i think surrey has changed under gareth batty as a as a team I think they were pushed a lot at times when they probably weren't ready, but maybe played on the right surfaces. I, I know that, you know, their head coach is a spinner, so he would want them. Um, I haven't talked to him directly about that, but I think the general feeling at Surrey was that they know they both have talent. It's really about whether they can do it game after game. Um, and they probably now have the ability within their team um, that they think they can sort of, that they don't need that, as much and maybe the pitches have changed down at Surrey I haven't seen as much cricket at Surrey this year I've seen more Kent this year it's kind of the problem with living halfway between the two but um yeah I think um I, I think I think that's a big part of it um my my thoughts I haven't seen as much of my reality actually but my thoughts on Verdi who many think will be a future England spinner is that he's about 85% of the way there but that last 15% has felt like it hasn't come for a long time now and so you're getting to the point where you're either waiting for him to mature and work out what he needs to do to make that work, or we're in a situation where what he is is what he is, and Surrey need to make a decision on that. But I think part of the problem with Surrey is just they've got too much talent. Uh, they've got so much talent to fit into any one team. That isn't really a problem. Both of those guys are probably playing for other teams just, just because there's a spot available for them. Maybe at Surrey there isn't. 
Aditya says, who would you rate as the best white ball all-rounders that you have seen? I think Afridi, Jay Sarita, uh, Jay Saria, Donny, Gilchrist, Pollard, and Russell would be at the top. Yeah, you probably throw Sun on Orion in. Um, I'd certainly have Lance Klusner in that. Um, I think he is completely forgotten, and uh, hopefully I'll have a, a big project coming out on him for the World Cup. Um, uh, I think he's certainly up there. Chris Harris is a really interesting one. Go back and uh, have a look at the role that he played within New Zealand. His numbers don't pop off the page. But when you think he was a high usage bowler, you know, batting in the top six, and also given a role that kind of didn't exist before Michael Bevan, and he had to sort of nail it on the run, um, I'd have to go back and have a look at Chris Cairns' figures. But I can only assume that Chris Cairns was certainly one of the the you know the top all rounders. Um, yeah, I don't think I'd put Ben Stokes in that. Ian Botham's another one that you wouldn't put in that necessarily. I suppose Capel Dev. Uh, based on his hitting ability and his bowling. Um, Viv Richards is an interesting one, although he went for a lot. He did have quite a higher bowling economy, which he should have because he probably shouldn't have been bowling that much. Um, well, how, about, how about we throw Darren Lehman in, uh, who has oddly good bowling figures, realistically, for uh, the talent of bowler he was this year. Um, trying to think of anyone else. I think someone like Chimin DeVos would be quite an interesting talent now. Um where do you put Andrew Simons in that when you factor in his fielding as well? Um, trying to think of some more all-roundery talents. But, yeah, I think you know, Shakib Al-Hassan you haven't got there. Oh, you missed the big guy. You know, for a long period of time, Shakib was incredible. Mohamed Nabi is probably another one I would put there as well. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, I think I'll, I'll, if you look at the very, very best, um, I think Shakib has to go into that list that you had before. T- he, he had a period where I thought he was brilliant as a T20 player. It probably didn't, it probably isn't his best format, but as a one day player, um, you know, certainly, you know, for a long period of time, um, he would go down as one of the best um, all rounders uh, that white ball crickets ever had. Sorry, one day crickets ever had. Ravi Jadeja is another interesting one there as well. And Moeen Ali, I suppose. They're both a little bit flawed but we're thinking about them more from t20s perspective perhaps but they're both certainly going to end up with really you know interesting numbers based on the way that they have played and their skill sets so they probably deserve to be in that conversation as well neil says i've recently decided to take up spin bowling awesome uh, as my body can't handle pace bowling anymore well that's most people uh at, at least neil's 36 as well uh, can you think of any examples of players who have successfully changed roles later on in their career, having done their initial role at a decent level? E.g., not like Giles Abroad, who roles changed when they were young. Yeah, of course, Neil. Uh, Colin Miller is probably your spirit animal. He was, uh, you know, a medium fast seamer from Victoria, never really took off, ends up in Tasmania, and then, you know, he's wobbling it around a little bit. You know, very, Colin Miller was very much an England style seamer, not so much an Australian style, style seamer. Um, and then for Tasmania, he starts bowling these really fast off spin and he ends up playing for Australia as a fast off spinner. Still bowls a little bit of seam up for Australia, but Australia didn't really need his seam up. They just used it because it was a, an extra skill he had. So uh, that's a very good one. Of recent times, one of the, the, the great ones has got to be George Dockerell, you know, who when he came through as a left arm finger spinner in Ireland was a potential uh, England um, spinner. Um, you watch him now. He still bowls a little bit, um, but he's a batter really now. Uh, he's almost a batter and part-time spin bowler now at most. And a lot of games, he just doesn't bowl at all. That's an incredible one. Callum McLeod did a similar one, although he was a little bit earlier. 
Callum McLeod was a bowler at Warwickshire, became a batter at Durham, went on to be a batter for Scotland, obviously, uh, and has had a fantastic career as an associate player. Uh, you know, for those who haven't seen a Callum, Callum McLeod, he's just one of the smartest batters that you, you'll come across. Um, uh, you know, I hate saying nice things about him. Um, hopefully no one tells him I, I have. But, you know, he, he's extraordinary. Andy McBride's another one at Ireland recently, of course, who's the pinch blocker going up the order. Um, uh, you've then got, you know, guys like Ravi Shastri and Mark Richardson probably did it a little bit earlier than what you're talking about. Certainly not at your age. They weren't changing at 36. Uh, but you're talking about their two players who came in, in one role and by the end of their careers were completely sort of a different player. Although Shastri could still bowl, but you know, um, uh, you know, he just kept continued to develop his game. We've talked about the all rounders a lot as well. You know, you get someone like Vittori who probably starts off as a bowler who can hold the bat, ends up as a as a genuine bat bat or well, genuine all rounder, but certainly almost a batting all rounder. And Judasia uh, is another one sort of pushing towards that sort of thing. Um, trying to think of anyone else that has managed to do that. Uh, trying to think of anyone in first class cricket who suddenly changed what they do. There must be there must be someone I'm not thinking of as well. Um, well, Kyle Mayers is quite interesting, of course, who started his career as a bowler, very much in a Colin Miller type of pace, you know, medium fast bowler, um, then starts to make a lot of runs and is kind of picked on the back of his batting. Uh, and every time you kind of think he's a batter, he then takes a bunch of wickets and doesn't make any runs. And then he makes a big innings again. Um, so he's a really interesting one, but certainly a, a kind of late changing player. Um, trying to think if there is anyone else. Uh, Jim Parks is another interesting one. So Jim Parks was a batter in county cricket in England, decides to start wicket-keeping and then gets picked as a wicket-keeper quite late, um, quite early into his development. Jim Parks is probably not talked about enough. I think he died recently. I think that's right. Um, uh, and he's certainly a player who is um, who has managed to um, – well, he's changed in many ways. He was the first prototype of a batter who became a keeper. So I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the great early wicket keeper batters or batter wicket keepers that they were, you know, you know, in, 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 um, they were, they were wicket keepers who happened to be extraordinary batters. I'm sort of taking that aside. Whereas Jim Parks was a batter, he sort of took up wicket keeping very, very late on, wasn't a wicket keeper when he was, you know, um, uh, coming through at the start of his career. Um, so yeah, it certainly has happened, Neil. It's a thing that, Cricket is so specialised. I think you probably almost need it. I, I almost think it should have happened more with pace bowlers who start to bowl spin later on. That kind of Graham Wag did it in you know for Morgan for years. You know the the ability to bowl fast spin. Franklin Stevenson sort of did. It. It's kind of how um, uh, how slow balls were invented. In fact, because of the slow ball got so Franklin Stevenson slow ball, Franklin Stevenson slow ball got so uh, uh, well known. He sort of went away from off spin, but. You know, he's a perfect example of someone who could have become a very good off spinner, um, uh, you know, based on the amount of revs he could get on the ball, if nothing else. Um, and do you count Moeen Ali, Neil, in that? Uh, again, didn't really bowl much when he was younger. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a few um, situations where between batting and bowling, the skill sets are so different that I wonder if in future it'll be harder for that to happen. Um, but within bowling, you could certainly see why a fast bowler might turn towards spin if they have that skill within them. Um, but it doesn't seem to happen much. It happens a lot in club cricket, as we all know. Uh, we've just got some from James here. 
Uh, why can't we see the toss on TV? I think we usually see the toss, don't we? Um, so the toss is usually recorded. I, I don't know if everyone knows this, but the toss is actually usually recorded. Well, it depends on the game, but the toss is quite often recorded before uh, for T20 and one-day games before you the broadcast starts. So it's recorded and then shown as live, but it's you know the teams already know what they're doing. That's not the case for test matches, I think. Um, but most of the time we see the toss, don't we? They, they love it. You know, the coin goes up in the air. It's good TV, I think. You know, it's something anyway. Um, so I think we usually see the toss. Uh, James says, I almost feel offended as how the little guys across the ditch are the World Test Championships, uh, but watching your New Zealand hard road video makes me feel warmer as they truly deserve it. I was just curious about what you could tell us about India's journey um, to being this scary, wondering if it is un unfortunately had something to do with colonialism and possibly racism now that billions uh, of people are bonkers for a game that wasn't a initially invented for them. I mean, it wasn't really invented. It just kind of happened. Um, any stories you can tell us or any books you can read upon? Look, yeah, I think there's, I think India's journey is incredible because, um, and, you know, I've, I've talked about this in sort of the, the history of, of, of test cricket, my book, James, well, I might as well plug my own, that India was probably one of the first teams that doubled down on a strength that wasn't English cricket. You know, Australia is a slightly different version of, of England, of course, because the pitches are different. But more or less, you know, seam bowling culture and when the when there was uncovered wickets, you know, um, spinners. Um, but they played, you know, they played an Australian brand of cricket that was very closely related to England. It's just a more attacking version of England, right? Seam, seam dependent. Uh, you then have New Zealand doing a similar thing, South Africa doing a similar thing of the early Test Nations. West Indies, again was playing very much like England. The first team not to play like England really is India. And so what you have is a team that is doing that because of their flaws, right? They, they don't have the seam bowlers of other countries. That really opens up the, you know, uh, cricket in a certain way. And I'm not saying that India picking all their spinners is why West Indies ends up picking all their pace bowlers. But there is an element to the West uh, India being the first team to do that. Uh, then you've just got the fact that, you know, Indian cricket started worse than many other cricket cultures. It was being paid for by rich people who wanted to be involved in the running of the sport. Um, you know, uh, from a national team perspective, that that meant that, you know, Vizzy paid for the team. So he played in the team, despite the fact that he was, you know, a club cricketer, really Maybe a good club cricketer is probably fair to say, but not an international standard cricketer. Should not have been playing. So they start with that. They then have the problem of, you know, if India has a problem today, what happened before you had social media and you had video analysis and all that sort of stuff? How did you even find the players outside of the major cities? So, you know, a, a lot of the original players are from, you know, better backgrounds that, you know, are in the right area. There's obviously incredible nepotism between selections and uh, state boards and all those sorts of things. And, and a lot of countries have that. Australia certainly had it as well. And, you know, in India, it's probably a lot worse just because of the size of the country and the amount of people who are playing it, you know, so that, and then you've got, I think one of my favorite things is that I think it was in 1991, you know, the BCCI had to sue to get cricket off um, uh, um, uh, the, the national broadcaster and they were paying to have that broadcast. So 
you know, while you've got the, you know, Kerry Packer has done his thing and, you know, professional cricket is sort of bubbling up and on its way around the world and cable TV is about to change things for a lot of different cricket nations, you know, India are sitting there having to pay the national broadcaster to actually put cricket on the TV. You know, the, the, the levels of things that they have to overcome. And then you have to remember what India is as a nation. India was Pakistan. India was Bangladesh, right? You know, India's got all these different things going on. It is becoming a nation at the same time. Um, and and they have that magical sporting um, history all in hockey, right? And they're building all towards hockey. And then hockey changes to um, uh, from uh, turf to astroturf. And India sort of completely lose, um, uh, you know, it goes from a, you know, a skill game to a physical game. They don't have the physical um, athletes at that time to be able to, you know, compete with some of the other countries and they lose something. And so cricket sort of fills that void, but it takes a long time to get there. Then they have that magical moment where realistically the West Indies should have won the first, you could argue the first five World Cups, certainly the first four. <laughs> um, and, and India just snatched that 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 third World Cup away from them. Um, and that really is the thing that changes everything. So, yeah, I think when you and you go back, I, I think what the most interesting thing about India today is the dichotomy between, I think it's hard to not root for, you know, Washington Sundar, right? Um, or players like him, or, you know, Mohamed Siraj. I, find, I think, really think it is very hard not to root for those players when you look at their backgrounds and what their family did and how they brought them you know selves up to this level at the same time though um you've got the bcci which is the most powerful thing in cricket so you have this incredible the players are still incredible underdogs through the system but they happen to play for the biggest beast that cricket has ever had i i find the, the i think the whole indian story is just absolutely fascinating and in some ways it, it I think some of the early writers, as brilliant as they were, sort of wrote it through colonial views. I think if, and, and I don't think you shouldn't do that, but I think what maybe modern historians will do when they start to look back, you know, um, I wonder if it, there will also be that thing of maybe maybe the personal stories of, of all these people as are almost more important than the, the colonial mindset that a lot of them had. Um, but the whole thing is fascinating to me. Thanks to everyone. Great questions. Great Spotify Live. Remember, uh, 99.94 has started its podcast. So get out there, listen to the West Indies on 99.94. Their first episode without me was about West Indies ODI cricket. It was fantastic. You know, I love Caribbean cricket podcast, but I absolutely love that episode. Um, the guys completely got what I was going for with 99.94. We also have India on 99.94 with Nikesh and Sarah. Um, I don't think I've heard their first episode, although. It's probably out there, but just go to your podcast devices, right? And and search for these things. Um, we'll be adding more and more teams um, over the next little while, uh, you know, and the idea is to have, you know, get the major international teams covered and then go off after domestic leagues and franchise leagues and first-class cricket. We want to cover everything. Um, and we're, we're setting that up. So if you can support us by subscribing and rating and reviewing the India and the West Indies podcast, that's huge for us. Um, uh, but And also just a huge thanks to Spotify uh, Live um, people. You know, if you want to ask me a question, download the app, come in, follow me on Instagram or Twitter. We send out the links there um, and follow us here and uh, uh, 
you know, it allows us to make these episodes. And hopefully in the future, we'll be able to do that on the 99.94 network right across it. And so you'll be able to ask, uh, you know, all the different hosts, different questions, but huge thanks to you. And I'll talk to you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. You can now download us wherever you find your apps just by putting in 99.94. There'll be other cricket podcasts not actually hosted by me, and there'll also be some radio commentary coming soon. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Or Jossie Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Sports Social Podcast Network.